The March 2011 triple disaster in Japan has brought much attention to and opened a needed dialogue on the safety of nuclear power facilities and on the broader issue of energy security. While nuclear energy has been touted as the answer to peak oil, the winds may be changing as the Fukushima disaster has highlighted the importance of embracing diversification as a part of any global or national energy security strategy. Fusion energy could well be part of such an approach. It very much represents an important achievement in human scientific and technological prowess and the ultimate energy security solution that may well be within our grasp. This is ISN Podcast. My name is Vivian Fricci. Our topic this session is energy security and the potential of fusion. Our guest today is Dr. Stuart Prager, director of the Princeton Plasma Physics Laboratory. Dr. Prager holds a PhD in plasma physics from Columbia University and is a specialist in plasma physics and its applications to fusion energy and to astrophysics. His research interests include toroidal confinement, stability, transportation, and magnetic self-organization. Upon graduation, he worked with the San Diego-based General Atomics and later joined the University of Wisconsin-Madison as a professor of physics. While there, he was appointed director of the U.S. Department of Energy-funded Madison Symmetric Taurus Experimental Facility and also served as the director of the National Science Foundation-supported Center of Magnetic Self-Organization in Laboratory and Astrophysical Plasmas. Dr. Prager has also served as chair of the DOE's Fusion Energy Sciences Advisory Committee, chair of the Division of Plasma Physics in the American Physical Society, and president of the University Fusion Association. Dr. Prager, thank you very much for joining us. It's an honor to have you with us today. You're happy to be here. Um, would you describe for us, if you could give us an overview of what is fusion energy and how it would be applied in generating power? Fusion is the energy that powers the sun and all the stars in the universe. It's based on the nuclear fusion reaction that fuses two nuclei of the atom. It's the opposite process to what powers present fission reactors where you split the two nuclei. So nuclei fuse, and in doing so, the mass is converted to energy, and energy is produced. It's a very potent source of energy. So to use fusion to generate electricity here on Earth, we essentially want to make a small sun on Earth and confine it. So the goal is to make a small sun, a very hot gas at about 150 million degrees, and just hold it there, and the billions and billions of particles moving in this 150 million degree hot gas will undergo nuclear fusion and generate heat, and then the heat is converted to electricity just like it is in any conventional nuclear or coal-burning reactor. So from the outside, a fusion reactor will look like a conventional power source, except that at its core will be this uh, very hot gas rather than uh, fission rods as in the current day nuclear reactors. Such a hot gas is called a plasma. Uh, fusion uh, could be an ideal energy source because the uh, the basic fuel of deuterium comes from uh, water, and there's enough there to last essentially forever. And then the other type of nucleus, the nucleus of the tritium atom, is bred in the reactor, so it's essentially limitless. It's uh, completely clean in the sense it generates no greenhouse gases at all. It's extremely safe. Perhaps we'll get to that later. And since the fuel comes from water, it should be available to all nations. So it's a, uh, when, when realized, it's uh, about as ideal as you can get 
as an energy source. Of course, the challenge is that it's a, it's a big uh, physics and engineering uh, challenge to get there. How close is the technology to be able to do this? Is it within our reach? Within our reach. It's not within the next 10 years, but we think that we would, uh, if it was uh, uh, strongly funded, be able, for example, to build a full-scale demonstration power plant in about 20 years. So 20 years is within uh, most of our lifetimes, and and this uh, expectation is the expectation of uh, not only scientists in the United States, but scientists all around the world that have looked at this come up with a similar conclusion that a demonstration uh, power plant uh, would be possible in about uh, 20 years. In your New York Times article of July of this year, you wrote that fusion energy generates zero greenhouse gases and offers no chance of catastrophic accident. Just to play devil's advocate, um, the risks of nuclear power were often downplayed. Why should we believe differently about fusion power? Good question. Uh, In terms of its uh, safety, uh, it has drastically different characteristics than the current nuclear power plant. There is really no chance of any catastrophic accident, such as a runaway or meltdown. It's just not possible to happen. And... um, There are two reasons to understand this. Uh, One is that at any given time, there's only about enough fuel in this fusion reactor uh, for the reactions to continue for a couple of minutes. We have to, in order to keep it going, we continually uh, inject fuel into the reactor. So uh, once the fuel injection stops, it all just turns off in a couple of minutes. This is different than in... Uh, nuclear fission reactors where you have the fuel rods uh, permanently embedded within the reactor. Secondly, uh, one of the big challenges of uh, making fusion work is that you have to keep this gas, this plasma, hot at a 150 million degrees. And that's a challenge. Any, any breakdown in any system, what automatically happens in a fraction of a second, uh, the plasma will cool down and the fusion reactions will be quenched. So in that sense, it's passively safe, no chance of any kind of runaway incident. In terms of its uh, cleanliness, the products from the nuclear fusion reaction are uh, helium. Helium is what you put into balloons. It's totally harmless. And a, a, a particle called a neutron that's then absorbed in the material surrounding the reactor. So in uh, existing nuclear reactors, the product of the, of, the, of the nuclear reaction itself are radioactive and need to be uh, buried or disposed of in some ways. But that doesn't occur in a fusion reaction. Um, it does share a favorable property with fission reactors in that it produces uh, no carbon, no carbon dioxide. So it really uh, contributes absolutely nothing to the issue of global climate change nothing to to air pollution either. Uh, The only uh, caveat in all this is that when these uh, neutrons, the products of the reaction, uh, get absorbed by the material that surrounds the reactor, that material becomes uh, mildly radioactive, but it's uh, orders of magnitude uh, less of a problem than in current fission reactors. So it's it's, um, these uh, twin assets, its uh, safety and its uh, perfect cleanliness, as well as its uh, inexhaustibility that have really kept this uh, research program alive and motivated across the world for a long time. 
Um, what about the risk of pollution from, say, the um, upstream and downstream byproducts from the reactor construction or the extraction of hydrogen isotopes or the production of energy? Are there any phases that would be high pollution activities? How much do we know about that? Uh, no, nothing of any serious concern. The, uh, the, the fuel, you asked about the production of the fuel. You just take seawater and you process it to uh, produce deuterium. That's done in large scale today. There's nothing dangerous about that. Um, uh, this other part of the fuel, tritium, is bred in the fusion reactor itself. And there, you, um, you, tritium is a uh, radioactive substance with a half-life. It decays away in 12 years. So that requires some careful handling, but that's all contained in the reactor plant, uh, no access to the public, and it's, uh, that's also a well-understood issue. So there's really, um, there's really are no uh, uh, public uh, health concerns of uh, any note. Um, to turn the discussion a bit towards the political aspects, um, especially in the, UE, in the United States, um, there seems to be a weak political will to do major, massive investments um, in this technology, and this is a major concern. In your view, where does this resistance come from? I would say that there isn't any overt resistance at the present time. In fact, it's, it seems to me that when the argument is made uh, to the appropriate stakeholders, whether you're talking to someone uh, who works within Congress, someone in the energy community, or even someone from the public, I find actually that there's broad acceptance and enthusiasm for this when the arguments are, are posed. I think societally, though, in the United States, there is not a active feeling of urgency to solving the energy problem for the, for the U.S. and for the world. And at the current time, there's, there's not enough of a broad-based sense of urgency in solving the global climate change problem. Uh, there tends to be more a focus on shorter-term issues, issues over the next five years. So I don't see an overt resistance. I see maybe more uh, an apathy towards solving this uh, critical long-range problem. And that leads to uh, funding which uh, exists, and there's some stable funding, but it isn't adequate to take us all the way to uh, commercialized fusion energy. And this is the United States I'm speaking about. Um what role does the construction cost then play um, in this issue? Um, the budget for the ITER project um, has ballooned far beyond its initial estimates. Um, do we have a better sense of how much it would cost to to build and run such a facility? I think I think the the cost for uh, ITER we pronounce it ITER ITER. Uh, has um, is stabilizing. It is true that from the original estimates to today, it's gone up some large factor, something like a factor of two. Uh, this is not too unusual when you have a, uh, a truly first-of-a-kind scientific instrument that's being built. Um, I think I think now the uh, the estimates of the cost are much more reliable. Uh, ITER is expensive. Um, that's why it's a, uh, a collaboration uh, across the world. It will cost about $20 billion to construct, roughly speaking. Um, there is significant added expense because it's an international collaboration, and if it was just done within one party, it would be 
significantly uh, less expensive, although there's uh, several wonderful aspects of having it being done internationally. So I think the eater costs are now under control. I think the cost evolution that it's gone through over the past uh, five, ten years is fairly typical for what are really uh, first-of-a-kind ever constructions. And then you could ask also what is the implication of the eater cost for the cost of eventual commercial fusion reactors. And the best estimates uh, to date, and there have been some serious uh, engineering analyses of what it would cost to construct a fusion reactor and to operate it, uh, the best estimates uh, come up with... uh, something in the range of 4 to $8 billion to construct a commercial fusion reactor, which is competitive to other large power plants. And also, best estimates come up with a cost of electricity to operate, which is competitive to other energy sources. So I think we're, we feel comfortable with the uh, eventual cost of a fusion reactor. We think we understand the cost of ITER, and the eater is expensive, uh, that's true, but we think that the cost is stabilized by now. Um, why do you believe that fusion is feasible as an energy source of the future? Um, it's based on the uh, progress to date. Uh, it's been a fusion has been fusion research began uh, many years ago, as you know. Uh, but if we look at where we are today, uh, the physics basis, the scientific basis for this, and a significant amount of the engineering basis is really in hand. Um, ITER uh, is a jump from where we are, but but there's a very high scientific confidence that ITER will fulfill its mission. ITER will generate uh, 500 million watts of fusion power for some 500 seconds and longer, which will really demonstrate the reality of this and its commercial feasibility. So based upon all that we know and where we are and our ability to define rather precisely the remaining research and development steps, uh, we have very high confidence that if there was investment, we can get to a fusion demonstration in about 20 years. It's really based upon the science produced to date and our understanding of the remaining steps. And this is quite different than where we were 20 years ago, 30 years ago, where we were very much more at the beginning of establishing the scientific basis for fusion energy. And this this confidence, if I can say, has actually uh, instigated uh, many uh, new nations uh, nations to get involved in fusion energy that were not heavily involved before. So this opinion is uh, fairly widely spread uh, around the globe. Dr. Prager, thank you very much for joining us. It was a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you very much. My pleasure, too. Dr. Stuart Prager is director of the Princeton Plasma Physics Laboratory and a professor in the Princeton University Program in Plasma Physics. Please remember, the views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of the International Relations and Security Network, the Center for Security Studies, nor ETH Zurich, the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology. This is ISN Podcast. Thank you for listening.